Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Landon. The music you're hearing is by the English songwriter Billy Bragg, singing passionately about making the world safe for capitalism. The lyrics suggest the American Armed Forces are the protectors of international capitalism. But a new book by two Canadian authors argues that the United States is the world's preeminent superpower primarily because of its economic supremacy, not its military strength. The book, The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire, was written by Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin. It argues against a number of widely held notions. It contends, for example, that far from being an imperial power in economic decline, the United States reigns supreme over a global economic system that it created over the last century in partnership with other advanced capitalist countries. The book also argues against the idea that the process of globalization was driven by multinational corporations that have now become more powerful than many nation-states. Panitch and Gindin write that states were crucial in the making of global capitalism and that the system evolved in the way it has because of American leadership. The reality, they write, is that it was the immense strength of U.S. capitalism which made globalization possible, and what continued to make the American state distinctive was its vital role in managing and superintending capitalism on a worldwide plane. Panitch and Gindin also write that the American empire is not like previous ones that ruled over conquered territories. They call the American empire an informal one that sets the rules for the operation of an international capitalist system, in partnership with other sovereign but less powerful states. In the interview you are about to hear, Leo Panitch says that, as a socialist, he's concerned about global capitalism's many flaws, including the huge inequalities in wealth that it generates and its relentless exploitation of workers and consumers. But he also says that socialists need to understand exactly how the global capitalist system came to be before they can figure out how to establish a better, more democratic one. Leo Panitch teaches political science at York University in Toronto. Sam Gindin is the Packer Chair in Social Justice at York University. We're presenting this interview with Leo Panitch in three parts. In the first one, Professor Panitch talks about how he and Sam Gindin came to write The Making of Global Capitalism. He also discusses the relationship between the 21st century nation-state and the capitalist system. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Happy to be here, Bruce. Well, uh, you explain in the preface to your book that uh, the book began probably back in the 1960s. Uh, how was that? Well, uh, to some extent, uh, the book is a reflection of a Canadian on the American Empire. Uh, and uh, one can't be aware, as one comes to maturity in this country and starts thinking about the nature of power in this world, uh, the way in which Canada is uh, embedded in every way uh, in this remarkable informal American empire. And by the late 1970s, uh, I had, uh, as a young academic then, uh, written a piece about uh, the way in which American corporations had to be seen as social forces inside Canada. They weren't external. And workers working for General Motors in Windsor make demands upon Canadian governments as workers for General Motors. Uh, so, uh, seeing that, uh, beginning to understand that, the way in which, in a sense, American capital is inside our country as a social force, not an external thing. Uh, a central theme of the current book is that uh, Europe, Western Europe in the post-war era, got Canadianized by the 1960s with foreign direct investment, multinational corporations, uh, and again, the American influence in Europe, which is normally seen as something external, uh, becomes internalized. 
Uh, it also becomes internalized culturally, of course, not only economically and so on. Uh, but I think that was the link from way back then to uh, one of the central themes of this book today. And there was also your friendship with your co-author, Sam Gindon, in your undergraduate days as well. Would that have been in Manitoba? Yes. Uh, he and I have been friends since first-year university, although I had first laid eyes on him uh, playing touch football in West Kildonan Park when he used to run back kickoffs for touchdowns, and I was very envious. Uh, but we studied uh, Latin and uh, economics uh, in first-year university in the same classes, uh, became very, very close friends. And uh, it was actually to Sam that I whispered uh, probably in second-year university, uh, I think I'm a Marxist, having read uh, a piece by Marx that I now don't think of very much at all. In fact, I think it's very crude, but back then. Uh, so we've had a very, very close friendship. He was an usher at my wedding, and it was one of those remarkable friendships where we'd be apart for four or five years and come back together and find that we were, that our brains were programmed in the same way. We were thinking the same thoughts. Uh, he went on to work in the trade union movement. He was uh, research director of the Canadian Auto Workers and assistant to Bob White and then Buzz Hargrove, um, the presidents of, of the union, and really the brains behind the separation of the Canadian auto workers from the international United Auto Workers. Um, when he retired, and we had often said to each other, we'll write a book together at some point. And when he retired, he came to York University, became the Packer Chair in Social Justice, a visiting position we have. Uh, and that provided a wonderful opportunity for us to do this, and it took well over a decade of research and writing to do it. Yeah, a lot of research in this book. And in fact, uh, the book uh, takes on some myths that other people have uh, promulgated or argued. And one of them is that uh, the spread of, of values, capitalist markets, values, and social relationships around the world was far from inevitable. Well, why was that? Why was it far from inevitable? Well, you know, whether you're reading Adam Smith or you're reading Karl Marx, uh, you, you get the sense uh, that the march of capitalist markets uh, is something on its own that uh, ends up governing the whole globe. Uh, you, what you can't read in Adam Smith or Marx, uh, you can't see any logical, inevitable basis for it, is why the American state came to play such a central role in the making of global capitalism in the 20th century. I mean, you can't read that off some set of equations on the dynamics of capitalism or the operation of, of capitalist markets. So this book is really begins with the question, um, what was it about American society that made its state so central to the making of global capitalism? And that was a contingent historical thing. It didn't have to happen. Um, and, and we try to figure out why American state institutions uh, developed the capacity to do this and how they developed the capacity to do it under what circumstances. In that sense, too, uh, it, we are running against the grain of the kind of thinking very prevalent, you know, both in journalism and in academic international relations, which sees the world as a uh, set of uh, externalized forces colliding with one another, uh, almost a billiard table with billiard balls moving around one another and bumping into one another, whereas uh, what we're trying to examine is what's going inside the states, in their societies, that is determining the kind of role they play in the international arena. Um, uh, and, and understanding the American empire in terms of, well, American social forces are inside other states, right? And to some extent inside the American state, insofar as you see uh, uh, Canadian or Japanese or uh, increasingly Chinese investment inside the United States. So uh, the other thing that you say, you argue against those who say that um, the Globalization, led by multinational corporations, has uh, depends on a weak state. That the, the state is weak. That the the multinational corporations wield the power. And you argue against that. You quite strongly. 
Yes. Uh, this goes all the way back to my observation of the Canadian-U.S. free trade agreement and then NAFTA, you know, when there was a lot of very superficial academic and journalistic writing about globalization being a matter of bypassing states, weakening states, escaping state control. But when you stop and think for a minute, who's signing free trade agreements? It's not corporations, it's states. And once you begin to unpeel the onion, what you really see is that really the author of what we call globalization is the state. Uh, now, of course, it does it for reasons that have to do with the power of uh, multinational capital, but not only that, it does it be for reasons uh, that are unique to the state uh, in the sense that uh, states promote capital accumulation because not because some capitalist phones up a uh, prime minister and tells them what to do, uh, but because they are dependent for their revenues on uh, a ticking over dynamic capitalist economy, because they're dependent for le their legitimacy on jobs being provided by that economy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, now it's, I think, pretty obvious to everybody that states have not been bypassed uh, by uh, globalization, uh, they have been very active in making it happen. And in some senses, they've been the initiators in making it happen. Now, some states do so much more than others, of course. And the American state has been far more important in making this happen than any other, but never alone, precisely because it's not an empire in the old Roman sense. It, we're living in a world of independent sovereign states. We need to figure out why the American state has the degree of responsibility as well as the degree of influence that it has. So would you say then um, globalization represents a partnership then between state and capitalist corporation? Yeah, that's uh, thinking of it as a partnership can be useful. Uh, but what I think it misses uh, is that the states we have are themselves capitalist states. Uh, that is, uh, over time, or after a century, two centuries of capitalism, state institutions, while in no sense, as I say, being subject to being instructed by capitalists, uh, in fact, they're often telling capitalists what to do, uh, state institutions have been organized in capitalist ways. Their policies their internal structures are themselves unique to capitalist states, if you see what I mean. And we tend to think of a partnership as these two entities that are qualitatively different. They are uh, differentiated, uh, but they are part of a capitalist totality, the state and the private sector, if you like. And it's very often the case, in fact, that the senior partner, if you want to put it this way, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure the partner metaphor catches it. The senior partner, in, in terms of figuring out how to manage the economy, figuring out uh, uh, the direction of economic policy, is the state, and it's it's telling uh, capitalists what to do, which is understandable. Capitalists are there, and their particular firms are competing with other capitalists. Uh, they don't see the forest for the trees. That's not their business. They're there to make a profit or, if you want to put it more critically, exploit workers or consumers. Um, but uh, uh, it's state personnel uh, who are looking at the larger picture. You also say, I can't resist asking this, that the state kind of manages social relations or class relations um, in a capitalist way. Uh, how do you see that? Well, you know, I think uh, uh, we need to look upon even the welfare state. Uh, even uh, regulations uh, in that way. Uh, for instance, uh, unemployment insurance was introduced after a lot of conflict and struggle, uh, marches by the unemployed in the 1930s, etc. cetera. Uh, but it was introduced in a way that did not uh, destroy, undermine the labor market. You only get uh, unemployment insurance if you've already been in it for a while and been paying into it. Uh, you only uh, stay on it for a certain amount of time. It's designed in such a way as to get you back into the labor market. Uh, 
Now, that's a good example of a reform, a reform, if you like, initiated from below, initiated designed to help working people rather than capitalists. Nevertheless, it is structured in such a way as to not undermine the labor market that capitalists require uh, in order to do what they do. Similarly, a lot of the welfare state is not a matter of providing uh, collective services. It's a matter of providing with people with the income to be buying the commodities that capitalist firms produce. Uh, so I think that's a way in which we can think about uh, even the management of reforms by uh, a state in a way that is designed not to undermine the operation of the, of, of the economic system as it is. Yes, I, I was thinking that as uh, Laura and I came in today in our chariot, private transport, privatized transportation. And I think you're arguing, aren't you, that the, uh, say, universal health care, things like that, um, take the pressure off us so that we can afford to buy that vehicle. They were structured in such a way as to do so. There, uh, there are things that states have done and can do uh, which are, if I may use a, a very convoluted word, decommodified. Uh, so I'm involved in a campaign in Toronto for free public transit. And uh, that would decommodify uh, transit services. Uh, that would mean that there's a collective benefit, right, to the collective service that is not being offered there as a commodity on the market, right? Uh, that would make an enormous contribution to the climate change uh, problem we have. Uh, it would induce people uh, out of the cars. It would allow for the type of energy uh, that is not fossil fuel dependent to be much, much more developed, etc. Um, that said, uh, that's a very difficult thing to get on the books uh, for reasons that have to do uh, with the cost to states, what it means for their revenues, the opposition on the part of those who sell commodities, and the extent to which we as individuals, of course, uh, are ourselves embedded in a standard of living which depends on private consumption. Now, that again was not something that just happened. That was something that was has been constructed over centuries. But we need to recognize the extent to which it was constructed during the heyday of the Keynesian welfare state. Yes, in fact, uh, the figures vary, but uh, at least two-thirds of the American economy and well over half, 56% or so of the Canadian economy, is dependent uh, for its growth on household consumption. Uh, underlining, I guess, that construction you talk about by the state of the environment for capitalist consumption. Yes, I think that that's right. Uh, and it's going to make uh, the attempts that now are on the books uh, or on our agenda to deal with climate change, uh, to deal with the vast global inequalities, very difficult. Uh, because what we're talking about is changing standards of living in the rich countries in such a way that would allow for uh, the redistribution of growth uh, in a world that will choke on fossil fuel-led growth uh, at a time when still the vast majority of people on the face of the earth are desperate for economic development. Uh, and at a time when, as Oxfam showed in a report it released just this week as we talked, the world's 18 richest billionaires will, by 2016 on current trends, uh, have as much wealth in their pockets, uh, in their control, as 3.5 billion people. You've been listening to the first part of an interview with Leo Panitch, co-author of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. The book gives a detailed account of the rise of global capitalism. It focuses attention, for example, on the imperial rivalries in Europe that led to the First World War, the growing American prosperity in the 1920s when the U.S. manufactured 80% of the world's automobiles, the crisis of the Great Depression and Roosevelt's New Deal, 
the devastation of Europe during the Second World War, and the founding of new international financial institutions after the war, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The book argues that American leadership was crucial in creating favorable conditions for international capitalist investment and profit-making. The post-war rebuilding of Europe, for example, helped usher in a so-called golden age of prosperity in the 1950s and 60s, a golden age that ended with the inflation and unemployment crisis of the 1970s. Here now is part two of our interview with Leo Panitch, professor of political science at York University in Toronto and co-author of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. The post-World War II period, the so-called Golden Age, um, from 1948, roughly, I think you say, to the early 70s, um, how would you place that in terms of the evolution of globalization? Uh, after World War II, and this was very seen very clearly during World War II uh, uh, by American statesmen uh, who laid this out very, very clearly during the war, the United States saw that given what had happened during the Great Depression, where not only communists uh, had uh, uh, taken over businesses, uh, expropriated them, introduced central planning, etc. But capitalist governments uh, in Europe, in Italy, in Germany, in Spain, in Portugal, had broken with globalization, had introduced capital controls, had treated foreign capital in a discriminatory way, etc. You know, those nationalists, those hyper-nationalist regimes, the 1930s. Uh, the United States realized that, uh, given its power, given its capacities, that making a world safe for capitalists everywhere largely depended on what it did. Uh, and that was the reason it was so involved in the post-World War II period uh, in uh, creating the conditions in Western Europe, in particular in Japan, for uh, a balance of forces inside those countries to emerge, which would be oriented to a transnational capitalism. Uh, of course, uh, the agreements that were struck at the end of World War II uh, allowed countries to keep capital controls for a certain period of time, which was inevitable because any money that a businessman would have still had or made or a wealthy person would have had in France or Germany or Britain in 1945-46 would have immediately ended up in New York had there not been restrictions on the flow of capital. Uh, so, you know, the American government had to act against Wall Street, which would have been very happy to receive all of that. But had they done that, there would have been no basis for American trade to grow. Right? Uh, and, yes, in a political sense, they were very worried that had that happened, uh, it wouldn't have been a matter of Soviet troops marching into Western Europe. It would have been a matter of people voting for socialist and communist parties uh, that would have tried to introduce a different system. So for those reasons, uh, the American state began to play this very, very important role. Now, it both buffered those states during their period of reconstruction after the devastation of war. Uh, uh, it... it uh, at the same time, it kept its eye on the ball in terms of the long term. And uh, it played a very active role together with the domestic capitalist classes in Germany and France and Britain and so on in moving those states towards uh, being in favor of reducing tariffs, removing capital controls, etc. Something that happened gradually, uh, but you know, by the end of the 1950s, uh, the German currency was fully convertible. Uh, Sterling uh, was fully convertible. Uh, the city of London, where British finance center of the British Empire is located, uh, was increasingly a euro-dollar market and a euro-bond market where dollars were traded. And, and uh, it effectively, it became, you know, the, Ameri the, the British merchant bankers essentially switched their allegiance from the pound sterling to the dollar, 
and and made a lot of money continuing to play that role and still do in the world. Uh, so you see, and it's, but, it, but it's in that sense that American multinational corporations, after that has been established, begin to invest in Europe. After Reconstruction, when there is a large market of, of consumers available, uh, and and those societies have protected themselves for a period, right? Then you see the American multinational corporations flowing into Europe in the 1960s, and people both to the left and the right, a couple of brilliant thinkers, one in France, Raymond Daron, uh, uses the word Canadianization in the 60s, and a brilliant Greek uh, political scientist living in Paris, uh, Nikos Poulantzas, also uses the term by the early 70s of the Canadianization of Europe as there's this flow of American capital into Europe and also culture, of course, that goes with it. Now, you write in your book that part of the informal empire that the Americans established, uh, as you've been saying, involves managing uh, the uh, environment so that... uh, uh, there's uh, a good environment for capital flow and all of those things, but it also has to be involved in managing crises. And we, after the golden age, the post-war World War II golden age, we find that crisis happening in the 1970s. How did that play into the evolution of uh, global, uh, globalization led by the Americans. Uh, there's two dimensions to this. One is that this uh, management of the global economy is never a unilateral business. Uh, it, it's very much an empire, probably the most powerful and, and most heavily burdened empire in the history of the world in terms of the responsibilities of governance, uh, the extent of it and the complexity of it. It's always empire by invitation. Uh, no, it isn't always empire by invitation, but uh, when we're speaking of the other advanced capitalist countries, it's empire by invitation. Of course, you know, troops are sent into Grenada when uh, uh, Mossadegh is overthrown in Iran uh, in 1953. That's hardly empire by invitation. And we're still seeing the consequences of it not being empire by invitation. Uh, that carries a very long, long legacy when it's imposition. But what we've been talking about in Europe and Japan and Canada, it's empire by invitation. And it is co-management with uh, the states and the dominant classes uh, of the other countries. And that's what allows it to be effective. Okay? That said, uh, capitalism uh, is a system that is full of conflicts and contradictions. Uh, it never runs smoothly. Uh, and no senior civil servant that you speak to uh, who have any influence, even if they read Ayn Rand, even if they pronounce themselves to be aficionados of Milton Friedman or or Friedrich Hayek, none of them think that the world operates on the basis of what neoclassical economists call equilibrium. You know, that there's some disturbance and then an automatic return to equilibrium. No, they think that this is a system which is very prone to crisis, Uh, And they see it as their role to attempt to, when there are crises, to limit uh, their extent uh, and to then play a very active role in returning to a system of balance, etc. That's what they do, right? They call that failure containment, the American Treasury. Um, so uh, the contradictions need to, they're not the same ones. They don't happen in the same way. Because it's a market, rather chaotic system of uh, competition, uh, because it's not planned, uh, the way in which the contradictions emerges depends on the particular dynamics of competition in a given period, et cetera, et cetera. Well, by the 1960s, uh, contradictions emerged in two senses, which then had to be coped with. One was that uh, the uh, enormous hunger for American dollars and American investment in Europe, once recovery occurred, uh, was no longer the case. And there was a surplus of dollars in Europe. Uh, 
uh, as the Germans and the Japanese started exporting to the United States, which the Americans were, of course, encouraging, which they wanted, which was the, the key to their development. Uh, it meant that the United States began to shift from having had this enormous trade surplus to having a trade deficit. On top of that, American dollars were going into keeping the military going around the world, not least of all in Europe, etc. Well, the Germans and the French and the Japanese got a little worried by the fact that, well, we're holding all these American dollars, and uh, what if those dollars get devalued? Uh, we won't have as much money because there's inflation going on in the United States, and then the dollar's not worth as much, right? The reason that there was inflation going on in the United States was that under conditions of the welfare state, high employment, uh, workers uh, began making demands uh, to be able to get in on the game at least or to get the types of collective benefits uh, that a capitalist economy doesn't like to offer very much. Uh, so, you know, what you saw in the 1960s uh, for my generation of young people who went into the labor force was a tremendous amount of disobedience. One tends to think of the 1960s as the student revolt in the universities, but it was as much going on in the factories and in the offices and in the hospitals and in the schools, right, where people got jobs. Uh, and when they were harassed by a boss, if a manager pinched a woman's rear end, uh, she wasn't uh, reluctant very often to take it, tell him off or to find a union who would defend her uh, because she knew she could get a job down the road. It was all the more the case in the 60s, of course, for young men uh, when women were just entering labor force then, although women were often the most militant in the 60s. The teachers and nurses were organizing them. Secretaries in government offices were organizing them. But young men in the factories, uh, you know, they were very militant because under conditions of full employment, they aren't afraid of unemployment. They figure they can go down the street and pick up a job, right? So they were making very high-wage demands uh, and often standing up to, uh, change to managers in terms of changes in the labor process uh, that were making them work faster and harder, etc., that had the effect of uh, squeezing profits, and businessmen respond to their profits being squeezed by raising prices. Uh, that produced inflationary pressures. That had international consequences because it meant that people who were holding the dollar would see that a year from now that dollar wasn't worth as much. Right? So there, one of the central, one of the key aspects of the 1960s were the linkages that were made between the American Treasury and the American Federal Reserve Bank and the finance ministers in what was then known as the G10 countries, uh, the capitalist countries of Western Europe, Japan, uh, Canada, etc., to co-manage this problem. So they all still needed the American dollar. They all still were oriented to an open economy. But how do we manage this, what was known as the crisis of the dollar? And very close relationships are developed during that period. Uh, people begin to know each other well, meet their families, uh, exchange phone numbers for when there's a dollar crisis. Uh, and this lays the basis for later becomes the G7 uh, through the 1970s as they manage the stagflation crisis of the 1970s. You're listening to an interview with Leo Panich, co-author of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. The book argues that the inflationary crisis of the 1970s and its threat to the stability of the American dollar led to the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s. Neoliberalism curbed the power of labor unions. The book says it all began in 1979 with what's known as the Volcker Shock, a drastic hike in interest rates imposed by Paul Volcker, head of the U.S. Federal Reserve, the American Central Banking System. Here now is the final part of our interview with Leo Panich, professor of political science at York University in Toronto. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. You write in your book about Volcker's shock, the high interest rate shock, that was at the beginning in 1979, I think, of the neoliberal turn which ultimately 
you write disciplined labor and uh, brought about uh, the kind of conditions we have today in which uh, labor is barely heard from in the, in the sense that it was in the 1960s, and uh, capital seems to reign supreme. How, how did that work? Well, uh, you know, this crisis that really lasted from the mid-60s to the early 1980s uh, was uh, uh, one that took a long time to resolve. Uh, And it took a long time to resolve because uh, labor had indeed a lot of democratic strength in these economies. Uh, And because they're democratic economies, it uh, couldn't easily be resolved in the Chilean kind of way. But for the most part, insofar as this couldn't be resolved simply by brute force, uh, it took a long time for this to be resolved. And uh, uh, to some extent, it involved integrating the trade unions uh, into a new view of the world. They took responsibility for wage restraint. Uh, They oriented themselves to making their economies more competitive rather than to equalizing class relations. The German trade unions were particularly brought on board in that way in the 1970s. In the United States, uh, uh, as in Canada, the 1970s were a period of considerable class conflict around this kind of thing. So there was a long protracted period of of, uh, class conflict and, and compromise through the 70s. And the Germans in particular put very heavy pressure on the United States to say, look, you're, you're the main manager here. Until you break the back of inflation, uh, whatever we do is going to be marginal. Now, we have been cooperating with you in keeping the global economy going, right, in keeping capital controls from being uh, uh, deeper and, and more effective. Uh, in fact, we've been removing ours. Uh, we stood with you against Charles de Gaulle and his uh, attempt to break from the dominance of the American dollar, uh, heavy pressure was put on them. And then heavy pressure was put on the United States by Wall Street, which increasingly was losing confidence in the ability of the American state to get through this crisis. And those two things together finally led Jimmy Carter to a point that what had been this young guy, Volcker, who had, back in the G10 meetings of managing the dollar crisis in the early 60s, uh, was a junior treasury official. But uh, by the uh, early 70s, he was under Nixon, uh, the assistant secretary of the treasury, and then uh, by Carter appointed him head of the Federal Reserve in in 78. And uh, not because he was a reactionary, he's not. He's a progressive man uh, who is not a monetarist or a neoliberal. Uh, He realized the only way to finally deal with this was to push interest rates as high as they needed to go, to induce a crisis, to induce a economic downturn, uh, uh, and and drive unemployment high enough that it would break the back of labor power. And that's what he did. He pushed on interest rates to eighteen percent, and it had that effect. Uh, but he said we interviewed him for the book, uh, and it was a great interview. I think he gave us so much time because he was hoping we'd invite him, he's a fisherman, that we'd invite him up to Ontario to uh, for a weekend to, to fish. But neither of us, you know, being Jewish boys from the Winnipeg North End know anything about fishing in North Ontario. <laughs> he probably was disappointed. But he gave us a lot of time. And uh, he said, but for all that I did, it wasn't, none of it was as important as uh, President Reagan breaking the back of the air traffic controllers in uh, the strike in the early 1980s. The air traffic controllers had voted for Reagan. Uh, uh, They were a very highly skilled, obviously, portion of the American working class. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but I remember them uh, in the television news being led away from the airports in manacles as uh, the Marines, the military, (laughs) the troops were sent in to run the airports, and that union was broken. At the same time, Volcker was appointed to the Chrysler board on the assistance of Congress when Chrysler uh, was looking for a bailout in that same period when the economy tanked because interest rates were pushed so high. Uh, and he was put on the board in order to ensure that the American Auto Workers Union would reopen their contract 
and offer concessions uh, uh, so that Chrysler would be able to have cheaper wages, et cetera, et cetera. And the break of the Canadian auto workers from the American auto workers occurred in that context where Canadian auto workers said, hey, wait a minute, we're Canadians. Why are we being subject to the dictates of the American Congress? In your book, you spend some time discussing the financial crisis, 2007-2008. Another crisis in global capitalism, of which there are periodic crises, as you point out. Um, What happened there, and what does it mean for globalization now, American-led globalization? The... Uh, in order to understand the roots of our current uh, uh, situation, the crisis that began in 2007-2008, we need to go back to the crisis of the 1970s, uh, which also was a global crisis, one of stagflation, as it was known then, both of stagnant growth, uh, of growing unemployment, uh, and of inflation at the same time until trade unionism was broken in the 1980s. Uh, uh, what was significant about that 1970s crisis, uh, and very different from the 1930s, is that it did not entail the breakdown of a globalizing capitalism. In the 1930s, with the introduction of tariffs, with the introduction of capital controls, the international economy seized up. What was remarkable about the 1970s was that, unlike the 1930s, with the co-management that was going on under the uh, rubric of the American Treasury's leadership with the creation of the G7, was a commitment to keep the globalizing tendencies of capitalism going. Uh, And that succeeded. And when you got the recovery from that crisis after 1983, uh, what happened was a tremendous exponential growth of international capitalism, a tremendous growth of free trade, increasing integrated global production. So multinational corporations were no longer producing a uh, piece of equipment in one place and selling it uh, in that place. They were producing that piece of various pieces of that final commodity in different places around the world, became integrated global production, right? Um, and, And an enormous growth more and more people and more and more states were drawn into this globalizing capitalism, uh, including, uh, increasingly, many of those that had been cut themselves off from the capitalist economies in through revolutions in 1917 or in China in 1949. Uh, uh, and they increasingly, slowly, but then, more and more rapidly by the 1990s, integrated into this global capitalism. The same occurred with third world countries, which had been capitalist, but which had tried to develop on the basis of what was known as import substitution industrialization, behind high tariff walls, behind high capital controls. Through the course of the 1980s, uh, they increasingly opened up, partly because they were subject to their own crisis, what was known as the debt crisis of the 1980s, uh, and they opened up to uh, global capital flows, to multinational investment, to free trade, et cetera, et cetera, under enormous pressure often from the advanced capitalist countries. Uh, So what was crucial to this happening, this integrated trade, this integrated production, was the development of finance of international finance. It had already been growing in the post-war era, but it really took off. And if you think about it, if you're going to have more and more international trade, you need more and more international trade credits. If you're going to have multinational corporations depending on uh, a piece of a product being produced in a far-off region of the world, and you have fluctuating exchange rates, then the person who's supplying that multinational corporation with a widget, right, say they sign a deal to, in February to supply that piece of equipment to the multinational corporation in October, Uh, they need to be able to somehow ensure that they have a profit margin in October should there be a change 
in the exchange rate between the American dollar and whatever currency they're dealing in. So they depend on international finance to uh, develop the kinds of products, they become known as derivatives in the foreign exchange market, that allows them to hedge their risk, to buy what is known as a future option on what the price of the American dollar will be in their currency in October. Canadian wheat farmers were doing this in the 1880s in the Chicago uh, markets. Uh, But this becomes a tremendously important role of international finance. Uh, It's part of the reasons for the growth of international finance. Now, more than that, uh, you know, there's enormous technological dynamism going on with this globalization. So uh, finance becomes very important in promoting venture capital. Uh, The stock market becomes very important, as we know, uh, in the roots of Apple and uh, the takeoff of Silicon Valley, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, finance becomes important in that respect. But very crucially and crucial to understanding the 2007 crisis is the fact that as trade unionism is defeated, more and more workers themselves become dependent on credit. Uh, They keep their standard of living going as their wages stagnate, but they keep their standard of living going by borrowing. So the type of finance that is going on isn't just about finance for capital. It isn't just what used to be called high finance, right? It's democratized finance. It's uh, workers becoming more and more embedded in the financial system. So it's already going on with the types of pensions that unions organized and secured for workers in the 1950s and 60s. It becomes all the more the case uh, through the 70s and 80s. So workers uh, then you know, are looking at whether their pension funds uh, are making uh, a high return from their investments in the stock market, even as they're getting laid off in order to keep up stock market value. Enormous contradictions. Uh, And workers begin to be more and more drawn into dependence on finance uh, for very basic needs. Uh, The American war against poverty, if it were the great society programs of Lyndon Johnson, were they to have been carried through, you would have had to have seen a massive public housing program uh, in American cities. Uh, that would have been crucial to the integration of the American underclass and the working class, the black population, in a egalitarian way. Instead of that, the great reform you got in the 1970s, the Community Reinvestment Act, required private banks to lend 5% of their capital into redlined black areas of American cities. A lot of some of that went to small black businesses. Most of it to providing uh, blacks with what is the basis of the American dream, the possibility of buying a house. On a much, much larger scale, women, which couldn't get, who couldn't get credit cards in the 1970s, uh, are integrated into the financial system. Right? That's one of the victories of American feminism. Right? And uh, the white working class becomes more and more dependent on uh, private mortgages. Not only to buy homes, but also to keep consumption going through what are known as secondary mortgages. Wall Street uh, develops these securities in the mortgage market. Uh, the Clinton administration, the Clinton Treasury, very proudly says all of the world's capital is rushing to lend money to American home buyers. Right? And then Bush comes in, and you know the Republican, the base of the Republican Party, in every. Uh, sitting in the United States is the real estate and the developing industry. That's the base of the Republican Party. Uh, so they really encourage this taking off. And uh, they let every shyster into the business of selling mortgages. The congressional inquiry into the 2007-2008 explosion of the mortgage market um, into the cause of the crisis points out that in Florida alone, there were 10,500 people with criminal records who were mortgage brokers. 4,000 of them had convictions for things like fraud, bank robbery, uh, etc. <laughs> Stunning. But, you know, this is, of course, the cause of the crisis. These guys are just, you know, the middlemen at the bottom of the pool. Uh, it is the Wall Street investment banks who are developing these phenomenal uh, 
derivative products, and indeed the you know mathematicians uh, who are uh, working out the equations of uh, how to manage risk in the use of these kinds of products as mortgages are sliced and diced, put into you know offered by different banks, different financial institutions, put into one another security, which is sold off to the Deutsche Bank in Germany on the basis of the returns that will be had when people pay their mortgages, right? Well, you know, a lot of those mortgages, especially the ones sold to poor people, and they were selling them to anybody who breathed, uh, can't be paid off. And it's impossible to know when you've sliced and diced good mortgages together with bad mortgages and issued them off into another security, which piece of them is toxic. Right, uh, you know, if you bought a case of Pellegrino, and you didn't know which bottle uh, had uh, the poison in it, would you drink any of them? Right. So people start trying to sell off these mortgage securities, um, and nobody wants to buy any. And this is what triggers the 2007-2008 crisis, with so much of the world's capital, you know, uh, invested in it. Uh, uh, one study by uh, radical geographers have shown that in uh, black the black areas of Cleveland, most of the mortgages were held by the Deutsche Bank, right? Uh, and when that crisis occurs, the Federal Reserve is in August 2007, not only bailing out American banks, it's bailing out the Bank of China Limited. It's bailing out PNB Paribas and the French Bank. Uh, and then, you know, because they're very worried that Congress, you know, these Babbitt co congressmen on Main Street, um, who are not new in the Tea Party era, they've been around forever, they find that the Federal Reserve is lending money to a foreign bank, heaven forbid. So the, the, the Federal Reserve then starts giving dollar swaps to other central banks, and they do the lending. By even before Lehman Brothers collapses in 2008, the Federal Reserve has provided swaps that have provided 7,000 financial institutions around the world with American dollars to the tune of some $600 billion, right? Uh, that doesn't stamp, the failure containment doesn't work. What the American Treasury has been calling failure containment since the 90s doesn't contain the crisis uh, because of the centrality of the American economy to the whole global economy. What begins to tank is General Motors, Chrysler, etc., but also what be, what begins to tank is the way in which China is integrated through Walmart into the American economy. And uh, when uh, the Great Crisis occurs in uh, the late uh, fall of, of 2008, uh, George Bush summons the leaders of the G20 states, not simply the G7 states, wh whose finance ministers have been meeting since the Asian crisis in, in the late 1990s, the Asian financial crisis. He now calls the leaders together, and they sign an agreement penned by the American Treasury before they come to Washington of a commitment to a free global economy in which they say, we see that this could be another Great Depression. We commit ourselves. To, in, uh, to a free global economy. We will not introduce the types of policies that will get in the way of free trade. We will not introduce policies that will involve capital controls that will prevent free capital flows. We commit to treating foreign capital the same as domestic capital. And they've seen that through at every G20 meeting since, including the one in Toronto in, in, in the June 2010, which produced such a massive confrontation between protesters and the police. Um, very few of those protest protesters knew what was really going on in the G20 meeting. They were recommitting themselves to that free global economy. They just did so again in Brisbane, Australia uh, in the fall, this fall, uh, this past fall in 2014. So the way in which this crisis has played itself out, which again has not involved the undermining of globalization, was very much that was depend something that was dependent on the action of states uh, working in coordination under the umbrella of this informal American empire in which the American Treasury and Federal Reserve are more important in keeping global capitalism going than the Pentagon or or the CIA. Although most people see the the bells and whistles that those guys create and think of American empire.
you write in the book that um, you draw two parallels, that the uh, formal equality of the liberal democratic state um, masks, in a way, the inequality, the economic inequality of the classes within that state, the workers, the farmers versus the capitalists. Um, and that's mirrored internationally by the asymmetric power between um, the American empire, the informal American empire, and those countries with lesser power, uh, uh, with lesser capitalist power, with less, lesser economic power. Uh, so that you're suggesting in the book that um, formal democracy and and these trade agreements and free trade and so on only go part way to establishing a democratic regime and that many people are left out of it. Um, many classes are left out of it. Um, you're a socialist. What path could socialists take uh, to, to change that situation, to try to uh, finally get democracy for all? Well, that's the $64 question, isn't it? Um, uh, I, I do think, uh, I think you put this question extremely, extremely well, extraordinarily well. Um, the, the formal democracy and the formal equality amongst nation states is not nothing. It's very real. As Victor Hugo said, the rich and the poor are equally free to sleep under the bridges of the Seine, and that captures both the fact that, that they are equal and the fact that when you're rich and when you're poor determines whether you're likely to be sleeping under a bridge in the rain uh, rather than in a warm bed. Uh, and we increasingly see this in this very unequal capitalism. It doesn't mean that the uh, formal citizenship rights we have, the rights to vote, etc., freedom of association, amounts to nothing. That's why there is protest. That's why there's always an indeterminacy about who will get elected, uh, why there's a possibility that new parties may emerge, as indeed occurred increasingly in Europe, some of them of the left, which are promoting uh, very radical, progressive solutions to the crisis, and others that are uh, promoting very reactionary solutions to the crisis, both of which would break up global capitalism in some ways. But some are coming from the right. They're very ethnically based. They are trying to protect people on the basis of ethnic identity, of beggaring my neighbor in the worst sense of the term, as opposed to others which have a more universalistic, egalitarian orientation. So uh, I think that uh, what we have in terms of democracy matters. But it is obviously colored, constrained, informed, limited uh, by the capitalist world in which it's embedded. Uh, and uh, increasingly we see uh, that those unions and social democratic parties who had socialist ambitions but thought that they had, by virtue of their growth and activity and influence, created a world in which you could have a humane, egalitarian capitalism, have been proved wrong. Uh, in a similar way, uh, there is formal and real equality among states around the world. Right? And that too matters. Uh, the United States can't uh, even tell Canada what to do without sending the Marines in. Right? Uh, it has influence over what they do, right? But it can't you know, determine what they do in the sense that it does a colony. It's been tearing its hair out over the role of the German Central Bank, the Bundesbank, uh, in not doing what the Federal Reserve did, uh, that is to throw money at the financial crisis in order to keep the system going. Um, and and uh, that indicates that there's tension amongst the individual states as well as inequality. Now, a lot of people look to that system breaking up as it did before World War I in a world of inter-imperial rivalries where the more powerful, the rising capitalist states will challenge the American empire. And they think that this is the way the world's going to go and they look forward to it. It used to be Japan that would look, be looked at that way or Germany. Now it's China that everybody's predicting will displace the United States. So uh, uh, that isn't about to happen. Uh, for the obvious reason that the Chinese state doesn't have the capacity or the interest to uh, take on the burden of managing a global capitalism. Uh, 
for the obvious reason that the degree of integration is such that, yes, China grows, very important development, but it grows in a way that is dependent on the United States continuing to be what it is in the world. Uh, you know, the, everybody integrated into Walmart or Apple, Apple in China is dependent upon American consumption, a trade with the United States, investment by the United States in Chinese growth, uh, etc. Uh, so it remains a highly integrated system, an asymmetric one, in which the American state institutions carry the main responsibility and have the main capacity for managing this global crisis and finding a way out of it. Um, the inequality is reproduced, even as China as a state becomes a larger player, just in the same way as the inequality was introduced when uh, workers became richer through consumption and their unions became more powerful, etc. They nevertheless remain subordinate within these capitalist economies, right? It's a similar kind of thing going on. How do we get out of this is a very, very difficult question. I think uh, the answer will be found not in conflicts between states, but in conflicts within states. Uh, we will increasingly see, I'm convinced, and are increasingly seeing, uh, attempts to reassert democratic control over the economy. Uh, attempts to raise again, because of the double crisis, the capitalist economic crisis and the capitalist climate crisis, uh, uh, to recognize that these can't be dealt with without a return and a, a renovation, a democratization of economic planning. Inconceivable that we could get out of the climate crisis without being able to have a system of economic planning that determines what's invested, where it's invested, how it's invested, etc. Similarly, this applies around the world. Uh, so, insofar as the world is going to change, it's not going to depend on China displacing the American hegemon. It's going to depend on class struggles inside China. Uh, and if all of the waves of strikes that are now going on in China uh, are simply about getting more commodities for Chinese individual workers if what they take as the goal of that is a vision of the world as being equivalent to the North American shop, shopping mall, which is increasingly developing in China, then that working class will be integrated in the same way that Western working classes were with the same kinds of contradictions that we're now seeing uh, in terms of both economic crisis and ecological crisis in the Western world, right? One has to, therefore, hope that those class struggles that are taking place in the third world will be oriented to developing a system of democratic planning, of collective service provision rather than commodification. But they will only go so far uh, as... as uh, we give them breathing room to do that. So they depend also on class struggles developing, especially in the United States, of a similar kind. This, is, this book was written as a book of history. Um, it's been, I think, the plague of historical materialists to think that because they have a you know, fairly adequate way of understanding the past, that they have a crystal ball for understanding the future. It tells them the right strategy for getting somewhere. That's not true. Um, um, it's been a book about understanding how we got here. Our hope has been that if we better understand how we got to where we are, we then will be able to spend more time on figuring out how to get to somewhere better. Uh, and uh, this, this book won the rather prestigious, I'm proud to say, Deutscher Book Prize in the United Kingdom. Uh, and what goes with winning that prize is not much by way of money, but is uh, the honor of giving a lecture the following year. And uh, Sam Gind and I gave the Deutscher Lecture in London in November, and we called that lecture uh, Theory and Strategy, Getting Somewhere Better. Um, and, and we tried to devote that lecture both to improving historical materialist theory and to improving the strategy of the left in terms of getting somewhere better. Uh, and that's going to be a long, slow process. One of our problems in this respect, and it's much discussed, is that the nature of the economic crisis is economic torture for a lot of people. Uh, 
the nature of the ecological crisis is a danger of uh, uh, an increase in global temperature, uh, which will have consequences in short order for millions of people of a very negative kind. We don't have the political forces, the political institutions, to be able to get to a democratic socialist system quickly. So there is this tension between needing to have the patience to build new political institutions of a democratic socialist kind, of a creative democratic socialist kind, which is going to take 10, 20, 50 years, and the immediate suffering of the environment and of people in the short run. Uh, that's an enormous strategic problem and an enormous human problem that we're facing right now. Professor Panitch, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Bruce. You've been listening to an interview with Leo Panitch, co-author with Sam Gindin of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. The interviewer was Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.